A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about marriage trends in uh, Eastern European Jewish history of the 19th century has been sponsored by the Shidduch Institute, who is encouraging each and every member of the wider Jewish community to fill out an easy and quick survey about Shidduchim and matchmaking in order to gain a better understanding of the machinations of Shidduchim in the North American Orthodox community and the challenges that uh, we are facing within that system. This is the only way that a solution can be found is by gathering real data through this survey, which the general public fills out, and then have it analyzed to understand the challenges. And there's something that I want to say, and I say this as an outsider, as an objective outsider, I hope. I live in Israel, so I'm an outsider, because in Israel, to the best of my knowledge, the Shidduch crisis does not exist at all, um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, is does not exist. But in the United States, it's there's a huge debate. Um, is there a shidduch crisis? If there, if there is, then what the scope of it is, and what are the causes of it, and what are the solutions? And everyone's got their solution, etc., etc., yada, 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 yada. But there's a broader point here, and as a community, we are generally very rich in opinions, in editorials, in solutions, in analysis. But we're very, 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 very short on hard data on any social issue, on any religious issue, on any educational issue. We're always rich in opinions, very short on numbers, on statistics. And that's too bad because we'd actually get a lot further if we approached social issues and we actually went out to the field and crunched out some numbers um, in many, many different areas, and political, religious issues, educational issues, and all, all kinds of things. This is not the time and place to speak about that. But in regards to the Shidduch crisis, the Shidduch Institute is finally, is the ones who are going out ahead and doing exactly that. And they've, um, they've earned my respect and support because they're doing that. They're one of the first Jewish, Orthodox Jewish organizations to acknowledge that the way to approach the challenge is first and foremost by obtaining the hard and cold data through a 
very sophisticated survey which will illuminate the real picture of what's going on in the Shidduch world for the very first time. And that will enable us to get past the noise and opinions and editorials and come back with some numbers, with some facts, with some real data. It's amazing. The only one little catch is that people have to actually go ahead and fill it out. Uh, fill out the survey, submit it back so the cumulative answers can be analyzed properly and professionally. So it's essential that every everyone everyone listening to Jewish History Soundbites right now, go ahead and fill it out. It takes a couple of minutes. Share the link with all your family and friends and contacts and encourage them to fill it out as well. It's important that it gets as many numbers as possible. By the way, there's another thing here. If a couple of thousand people go ahead and fill it out as a result of this ad on Jewish History Soundbites, it will be a very concrete way to show sponsors of this podcast how much market clout Jewish History Soundbites has. So it's also a great service to Jewish History Soundbites, not only to the uh, Shidduch world and the general society. The link will obviously be posted in the show notes as well. as um, as well, And, and it is Shidduch Institute dot com slash survey. Um, so they, that's um, that's about the Shidduch crisis that we've all heard about and all talked about and all come to our brilliant conclusions. Um, but um, everyone's got their own opinions and, and about it. So um, and everyone knows that their theory is the only theory that's correct. So and now we can actually find out um, what it is. The Shidduch Institute is working with top-tier data scientists to develop this customized survey for the community, and the survey will help pinpoint exactly what the main issues are for singles today in the Shidduch world. And obviously, the survey is just a means to an end. Once the survey is completed, it's going to be analyzed and utilized to produce a solution with a broad consensus and with the proper resources to do so. And once they have the accurate information, social change and social improvement is not only possible, it is almost inevitable. So go to shidduchinstitute.com and fill out the survey, send the link to your friends and family, and have them fill out the survey too. And of course, the sponsorship is related to today's topic, Marriage Trends in Jewish History. And why is this a great topic? This is, by me, almost an ideal topic. I wish... I wish more Jewish History Soundbites episodes would be about social issues, about social history, not social issues only, social history. Um, Jewish History Soundbites is very heavy on rabbis and heroes, um, not enough on broad trends, broad social issues about the Jewish people and the times and the context. I wish more episodes were about it. Um, the three criteria I would like as an ideal episode are not specifically about rabbis, that it's very broad, and that it to be social. I could do a hundred topics like this if there would be enough sponsors interested. So sponsors out there, I obviously love rabbis and love it that you love rabbis too, but the the if we could have a, a little more diversity like such as this episode... Um, and this is a great topic, and it's going to be one of my favorite episodes. So obviously we can't do this without mentioning rabbis altogether. we got to start off by mentioning rabbis. So I actually remember, um, you know, one of the things they talk about in the, uh, 
in the Shidduch crisis, uh, um, you know, Shabbos table conversations, is if if uh, the marrying a spouse who's older. So if boys would marry girls who are older. I think that's that's one of the solutions, or I don't know, one of the uh, one of the issues involved. So I remember um, when I was Menachem Avul, Rabbaren Leib Steinman, many years ago. Um, it was like cool to be able to say that, you know, like you t- that's the reason I went. In other words, I had no idea who Rav Steinman was at the time, but I knew that it would be cool to say afterwards, "Hey, I just went to be Menachem Avler Rav Steinman." So that's why I went then. But I did get a good nugget of information. He was sitting shiva for his wife um, this many years ago. I think it's about twenty something years ago. I don't remember the exact year. And they mentioned there in the Shiva house that his wife was three years older than him. So there you go, a good historical tidbit. Rav Steinman's wife was three years older than him. I think I remember recall reading in the biography of Rav Shamshin of Hirsch, or maybe it was another related article, I don't recall exactly, but I believe that Rav Shamshin of Hirsch also, his wife was significantly older than him, and I think there were other famous rabbis as well, so it's not unheard of to have... Uh, they have the lopsided marriage age there. I don't even know why it's considered lopsided, but that's another story. Either way, I wanted to open the topic um, about the story um, that I that I very often say in, in front of Block 10 in Auschwitz, in Auschwitz Concentration Camp, Auschwitz 1. Today it's a museum. Um, when I bring the groups there in Poland... And I recently read an article in the Mishpacha magazine relating um, marriage, shidduch, shidduch uh, age issues and crisis to fertility challenges and, and how this organization is bringing the two together um, and works on both communal challenges together. So this story that I'm about to say that took place in Block 10 in Auschwitz is a great opening to the marriage topic, the shidduch topic, but it's closely related to fertility as well, and I and I very often say it's a very powerful story. There was a 16-year-old girl named Aliza Tsarfati from Saloniki in Greece, um, who was deported with her family and community to Auschwitz in in uh, 1942, 1943. Almost all Jews from Saloniki were were murdered by the Nazis in Auschwitz in the gas chambers. She's one of the few who were selected. And and she ends up in Block 10. Now, Block 10 was an infamous block in Auschwitz, um, in Auschwitz 1. Again, the medical experiments in Birkenau, in Auschwitz 2 Birkenau, were infamously headed by by uh, Mengele, Yusuf Mengele. Um, we're talking about a different place. Block 10 is in Auschwitz 1. There was a, a team of SS doctors. One of the main ones was Dr. Klaus Klauberg and, and, and his... Uh, his team, his staff, and uh, um, so they were two distinct operations. In any event, the very often the the uh, medical experiments that were cruelly, uh, awful, awful cruelty and torture that were done by the Nazis on inmates in Auschwitz, very often Jewish inmates in Auschwitz, um, were done very often for, for to to uh, make women infertile. Um, and and today till today, block ten in the museum there is block is is sealed. You don't go in with groups. You stand outside. In respect to the horrible tortures that went on in that place. It's not a place for visitors. Um, so so Lisa Tarfati is sixteen years old, 
and she's uh, she's and she's taken to block ten where she's going to have this terrible surgery done to her. And the SS doctors actually had forced Jewish inmates who were physicians to work for them. They forced them to participate in the surgeries to be their to be their medical assistants. And there was an elderly German doctor in his sixties, I believe, whose name was Doctor Maximilian Samuel, who was a secular assimilated uh, German Jew. Um, not religious at all, but he was a very prestigious doctor before the war in Germany, and he is forced by the Nazis to work in... Uh, it's very, it's very, it's, what's even more bothersome about the story is that if you look up Dr. Samuel, you'll find that many online accuse him of being a collaborator, when in fact we'll see in this story he was a hero, he was not a collaborator at all. Um, you know, this, uh, one of those issues of, of besmirching Jews who were found in very, very challenging, extenuating circumstances under Nazi oppression. In any event, so this uh, this lady's this young lady uh, Lisa Tarfati is being experimented on, uh, uh, sur- uh, done this surgery, this terrible surgery too, and Klauberg is performing the surgery, and Dr. Maximilian Samuel is there as well, and then there's an air raid siren. Um, presumably from the Russian Air Force or someone who Soviet Air Force, the Red Army, whatever it was, they there was a air raid siren, and um, and uh, it's nineteen forty three. So the the and and the SS leaves the SS staff Klauberg and his staff leave the room and go into a bomb shelter and order Doctor Samuel to continue the surgery on his own. Um, it, the, you know, the inmates don't get to go into a, a bomb shelter when there's an air raid siren. And she, who's obviously awake during the surgery, she starts to yell and scream and curse this doctor. She says, you collaborator, you murderer, look at me, I'm a young girl, and you're destroying my future. You're just, you're, you're killing, you know, you know, I'm never going to be able to have children. I'm never going to, you know, what are you doing? You're just, you're just a Nazi collaborator. And she's going on and on at him as he's, continuing the surgery, and he is silent. He doesn't respond. When he's finally finished the surgery, and the SS are heading, heading back into the room after the air siren, he, as he's leaving the room, he glances at her and says, says to her quietly, one day you'll remember me. And uh, she goes on, and um, later on in the war, she meets um, a, another Jew from Saloniki, um, in in a sub camp of Auschwitz, a fascinating story. Um, Ovadia Baruch, who's being uh, beaten by a Nazi uh, SS guard for for having possessed contraband, he was smuggling something, um, food or whatever it was. He was trying, you know, starving there, and he's as he's being beaten, he's he's screaming in Greek, and you don't really hear that often in Greek in Auschwitz. So she. Heard that, and she. Uh, this is a sub camp. It wasn't exactly as separate the genders as as the as the Auschwitz main camp. And she they, she contacts him, and it's this beautiful romantic story. And Auschwitz, they they they, they promise each other they're going to survive, and they're going to and they're going to marry each other after the war. And miraculously, the two of them do survive, even though their entire families are wiped out. And they meet in Saloniki after the war. The only survivors of their families, and they're going to get married now. But she says she backs out of the agreement. She says, "We're not getting married. I can't have children. You lost your whole family. 
you you need to build a f- new family, you need to have children. And I was experimented on in block 10, and obviously I'm infertile now, and uh, you, we can't get married. See, he, you know, again, it's a beautiful romantic story. He says, I don't need the children, I want you, and we're going to get married anyway. She doesn't believe him, so she makes him sign in the ksuba an extra clause that he doesn't mind that they're never going to have children. So he signs in the ksuba this clause that he agrees to marry her even though they're never going to have children. They move to Israel, and lo and behold, she's not feeling well one day. About a year or two later, she goes to the doctor in the, in the socialist kupat cholim at the time, and the impatient Israeli doctor says, what do you want from me? You're not feeling well. Of course you're not feeling well. You're three months pregnant. And she jumps off the table and says, it's impossible, doctor. I was experimented on in block 10. So he says, I don't care about your block 10. You are three months pregnant. And they go home. And sure enough, a half a year later, she has a healthy baby boy. And um, she goes back to hear what Dr. Maximilian Samuel who actually was killed by the Nazis a couple of months after this story had happened, and uh, no one knows why he was killed, but he 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 definitely was. He did not survive, but she had he had told her one day you'll remember me, and uh, and he remem- she remembered him. He had um, you know fudged the surgery. He had because the SS wasn't looking over his shoulder. He had risked his life to you know, make the surgery not happen in a way that it would not uh, damage her fertility prospects after the war, which is an incredible thing, because if you think about it, people in Auschwitz were struggling to survive. They were not, they were not thinking about building a Jewish future. And here this doctor is not just thinking about survival, he's thinking about how are the Jewish people going to be rebuilt after the war? How are, how are people going to have children after the war? Not just surviving the war, but how is the Jewish people going to be rebuilt? And they had a second child, and of course when Ovadia Baruch, who I heard the story from in a video testimony, the camera goes to a picture of his family today when he's relating the story. And you see the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, this incredible family that's all with this foresight in Block 10 in Auschwitz of, of this happening that they should be able to continue. So that's a story of marriage and fertility in Auschwitz. And that is a great way to get into this topic. And um, uh, Professor Shaul Stempfer has great research on this marriage trends in pre-war Jewish Eastern Europe, and I'm going to base it off of him because we have this image of, you know, Tevye the milkman, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. That's the image most people have of Shaduchim in the shtetl in Eastern Europe, richly painted by Shalom Aleichem, when really it was a much more nuanced picture. What exactly was going on? What were the ages they got married? What was the difference in the socioeconomic status, the religious, the demographics, the role of the matchmaker, of the Shadchan? And the age of marriage, if you go back all the way to the Middle Ages in, in Ashkenaz, there's a famous Taisvis and Kiddushin, a really historical Taisvis and Daf Mem Aleph and Kiddushin that describes how fathers would marry off their, their daughters at a young age because, and he, he bemoans the state of the exile and the, the pain of the exile is very apparent in that Taisvis about how they're concerned that they won't have a dowry uh, to give their child if they don't marry her off young. And you have to run to marry off your children because who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's lurking around the corner? What kind of tragedy is, is going to await? So therefore you marry them off at a very young age. 
There's another uh, element of commercial marriages to forge business connections, which was very common in the Sephardic diaspora world of the 16th and 17th centuries, that the children of, of families, of business families, of two commercial families, that they would arrange that their children should marry each other. I don't think the children were consulted in these marriages. Um, to... Uh, to, to, to forge a very good business connection. That was quite common uh, for centuries. But, um, but I'm going to focus on, what, uh, on Charles Stempfer's uh, article, which, which he, he's talking about the 19th century in, in Russia, in the Pale of Settlement. Um, he has lots of other articles uh, which talk about all kinds of social issues in, in the Jews of Eastern Europe at that time. Divorce, uh, remarriage, Love and romance in marriage, Shadchanim, the economics of marriage, changes in marriage trends, comparing Jewish and non-Jewish marriages, was Jewish families matriarchal or patriarchal or neither or both, and other similar topics, which are all fascinating, not to mention a host of other topics which he's researched, but he's a great researcher. Today we're going to, like with the the remaining time that we have, we're going to focus on the marriage age in Eastern Europe in the 19th century and how it reflects social and religious changes as well as a general understanding of the context of the socioeconomic backgrounds of the different strata of Jewish society uh, at the time and how that impacted marriageable age because we're going to go into the class system. I'm not going to try to sound Marxist here, but the Jews in Eastern Europe especially in the 19th century, before urbanization, before the Industrial Revolution, it was a very, very clear um, difference in classes between the Shena Yidin and the Prosta Yidin. The, the elite of the shtetl society were the learned and the wealthy. The rabbis, the Torah scholars, and the wealthy, the wealthy businessmen and the Rashi Kahal, the ones who ran the the kahal in, in in which which you know controlled all of Jewish life in uh, in 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 Eastern Europe at the time in the early 19th century before that changed and then there were the, the what was known as those were the Shena Yidin, and then there's the Prosti Yidin, which were the masses the artisans the craftsmen the laborers um, a lot a lot of a large percentage of them were illiterate you know the ones who went to work at a young age. Um, and and this was the majority of the Jewish population, but they had very little say in what went on in the kahal. Um, so a, there's a, a just give a little summary of of Stempfer's findings, and I will actually cite directly from his article at times. So if I sound more articulate in the coming minutes, it's not me; it's from Professor Stempfer himself. Um, he talks about the premature, the early early marriage which was common in, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the modern period, even before it's, it's the, the partitions of Poland. In other words, when it's, before it's Tsarist Russia, when it's still the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Polish Kingdom. Um, and we're talking about how it is perceived as quite common um, to get married at 12, 13 years old. And, it's, and it goes into the 17th, 18th, 19th century, there's, there's uh, in Shilas and Shuvas, in Halachic Responsum, it says, it talks about this, this, these premature marriages that happens. Um, young boys, young girls are getting married. There, he brings a tshuva there of Reb Shmuel of Amdur. 
in the 1700s. And he says, In some communities it is customary today to be lenient and to allow the marriage of young boys already before the beginning of their 13th year. In other words, before their bar mitzvah. Even though according to the Talmud, this is clearly forbidden. So that indicates that early marriage was practiced. He's talking about early as in young teenagers, 12, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. It was practiced in Poland, but it also suggests that it wasn't the standard everywhere because it's still news in the Shailas Atshuvah Svar. The first autobiographies we have of Eastern European Jews from the 18th century also document the practice, the famous autobiography of Solomon Maimon. Um, he wrote about his broken engagement and his subsequent marriage at the age of 11. There are references to early marriage that can be found in communal records, in the uh, Vad of, of Lita, of the Lithuanian Jewish Council, there's a, 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 a takana, a, an enactment of 1761 that says it is absolutely forbidden for, for a male to marry before the age of 13 years and a day and for a female before the age of 12 years and a day. In other words, after that it is permitted. Um, and the fact that it was necessary to make such a rule suggests that there were Jews who married off their children even younger than 12 and 13. And that's what non-Jewish observers of Jewish society uh, found as well. They saw that was characteristic of the Jewish community that 12 and 13 year olds were getting married in the 18th and 19th centuries in the Jewish communities. Um, it even came up as an issue to contend with, uh, to, 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 you know, the, as a way to get the economic and cultural improvement of the Jews in Poland. So non Jewish politicians suggested um, enacting laws making the age of marriage later. Um, so that there should be a minimum age of marriage. So that was actually contemplating, contemplated as it, towards ameliorating the situation of the Jews in Poland at the time. And that's what historians of Polish Jewish history made as an assumption that Jews in Poland in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries all got married young. At 12, 13, 14, and 15 years old, that had been, it was characteristic of the Jews. Emanuel Ringelblum, the famous uh, Polish Jewish historian, he wrote an article on the topic and he wrote that Jews at that time would marry at a very early age, much younger than the general population. Isaac Schipper did uh, the same thing. He said most Polish Jews were ma- during the 18th and 19th centuries were married by the age of 16. Other ones said even younger, 13-year-old boys, 12-year-old girls got married, um, sometimes even younger than that. Um, Sometimes when there were panics sweeping through the Jewish communities, there was rumors that the government would be making laws against Jewish marriage so they would marry off their children even at the age of 6, 7, and 8 years old, which was more rare, but it happened as well. So the perception was that the Jews in Eastern Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries got married at, uh, at a very, very young. Uh, the reality is different, and this is what Stemfer proves, is that it's not true. It's simply not true. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, the scope of these early marriages was quite limited. And he explains it in, in this class system of Jewish society. He says that in reality, very early marriage among Jews was limited in scope in the 18th and 19th centuries. Most Jews did not marry in their early teens, and many did so only in their 20s, which, hey, that's the custom today as well. So not much has changed. 
And the the the, the way he proves it is uh, he has to you have to understand. Um, uh, first of all, the the numbers again they crunched out the numbers, right? And he brings a, another scholarly article written by Jacob Goldberg in the 1980s. And he finds that it's actually not true that most uh, were uh, married when they were teenagers. He found that the population, only 20% of males were under the age of 20 were married. Only 40% of females under the age of 20 were married. So in almost every case of very early marriage, the young couple was supported by the parents of the girl, which is going to be a crucial part of the story. And this was called Kest. Uh, is famously called Kest in Yiddish. That's the support of a son-in-law. So we need to know a little bit more about Kest in order to understand that. Um, so most Kest givers, this is a research done by a famous Jewish Marxist historian, actually a friend of Ringelblum, close friend of Ringelblum, Rafael Mailer, who colored all his research with the Marxist economic uh, class uh, division, so it's a bit bit colored, but he, 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 he brings the numbers. And he shows that two-thirds of kest givers, in other words, fathers-in-law who were supporting sons-in-law in the shtetls in the Lublin area of the time period that he, that he, that he tested, he found that, that two-thirds of them were, were, were wealthy, were tax, were tax collectors. Uh, are considered part of the you know the heads of the community, the heads of the Kal, and and they were the wealthier members of the community, um, and uh, this is obviously related to their economic condition, and the tax tax collectors were financially better off in the community, and they they were the ones who were supporting young sons-in-law, the daughters of the poorer members of the community. We're not. We're marrying at a later age, and they were not getting, and, and their fathers were not supporting their husbands. And obviously, there's an economic element here. So, the 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 uh, the young marriage was primarily limited to the wealthy members of the community. It also comes apparent in a very strange source that Stemfer brings Yiddish folk songs. Yiddish folk songs deal with the challenges of Shidduchim and the context of these songs, meaning the finding of Shidduch. And the context of these songs would indicate that these people were not 12 or 13 year olds. In other words, the challenge of getting married, which already for older ones was. Um, was among the the um, where there there was there was there was not they were not yet married at twelve and thirteen they were older they were later teen years or early twenties um, and the uh, so that that would again show that it wasn't it wasn't universal it wasn't uh, it wasn't that everyone was was getting married when they were twelve thirteen years old there were plenty of people. Uh, not married in their late teens or twenties, if there were all these Yiddish songs being composed about the challenges of finding a shidduch. Um, so the the, um, the 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 main point is the uh, the strongest evidence for the claim that very early marriage was characteristic only of some Jews and not of all of them is that in almost every description of an early marriage, the boy is depicted as moving into the house of his father-in-law. 
he would live there and the couple would receive financial support from his in-laws for the number of years of kest that he's supposed to get. During these years, what would the boy do, the young man do, the young married boy who's 12, 13 years old? He would devote most of his time to Torah study in the local base medrash. And the, the, uh, no, no young chassan went out at 12 or 13 years old to go earn a living. It is obvious that most Jewish fathers of young women were not able to extend support to their sons-in-law and because they could not afford to. The quest of supporting a young Torah scholar who learned all day in the base Medrash was quite significant. And therefore, they, most people could not afford to support a son-in-law. So supporting a son-in-law and his family were a luxury that only few could afford. And not, not only that, but most young men in the shtetl were not capable of learning Tyra all day in a base medrash. That was only for the few and for the scholarly elite. So premature marriage, this young marriage was, was common in Eastern Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries, but only by the elite strata of society, only by the wealthy and learned, only by the Shane Yidin not by the Prestoyedon. Most of the Jewish community, the Prestoyedon, the simple masses, were, did not, were unable to allow themselves this luxury of early marriage. They got married in their late teens or early 20s. And, um, and you have to understand how this looked in the, in the Jewish community, right? So, so the, the, uh, the parents of the, of the young lady who's married assumed the responsibility for the financial support of the young couple. So they're the wealthy members of the community. And the young couple lives in the parent's house. And he goes to study in the local base medrash. Right? This is this was the pattern of all those who got married young, which most people who got married did not do. So they went to work right away. That's because they got married later and they were poorer. Right? So we think about it in the social sense. The the benefit of these this this public display, this young man who's going to study in the base measures. Everyone sees that he goes and studies in the base measures. Everyone knows that he's being supported by his father-in-law. Everyone knows that he's a young married man who can have afford to study in the base medrash all day because he has a father-in-law who's supporting him. So study in the base medrash was a public demonstration of the father-in-law's economic stature and also a public demonstration of his religious commitment, of that he loved Tyra, that he loved supporting Tyra. So now that raises his prestige in the community. He loves Tyra, and he is wealthy. He can support a son-in-law in learning. And therefore, that was done in that strata of society. Um, everyone knew that. And you chose a scholar as a son-in-law, and this financial investment to support his Tyra study was visible proof of his status in the community. Um, and therefore, you're part of the Shana Yidin. You're, you're the elite, both because you're scholarly and because you're wealthy. The lower class Jews delayed marriage, and the couple had to support themselves because they were not part of that strata of society. So that was a, a very part of the, of the social context of, of the shtetl Jews of the 19th century. So that, that really explains. And that's also the thing of Shadchanim. If we think about the role of the Shadchanim, Shadchanim were almost exclusively used only by the Shane Eden, only by the elite of society, only by the scholarly and wealthy. Because you got a percentage. The Shadchan got a percentage of the bride's 
dowry between 0.8% and 2%. And if this was the dowry of the prostayidin, of the lower classes of society, then it's not worth it for the shadchan. It would be meaningless. He would not even bother with it. And the prostayidin made their shaduchim on their own. The shadchan was employed only by the wealthy in the community. And that's also another component to understand. So the reason, obviously, that the sources were skewed is because of the fact that most of the written records, autobiographies and biographies, are written by the elite, by the wealthy, by the about rabbis. They're written about rabbis, about Torah leaders, and therefore Torah leaders were always the ones who were supported by their fathers-in-law. So they're going to leave most of the written records, or by the wealthy, by the literate. The most the masses. Half the time they were illiterate altogether. They're not going to leave written records. So we know obviously more about the elite of society. Now it disappears. Towards the end of the 19th century, this whole idea of getting married young completely disappears from the Jewish landscape. How does that happen so quickly? That's a very curious phenomenon. And we have the answer. It's answered by none other than the Chafetz Chaim himself. Because the financial elite of Eastern Europe starts to move away from the trend of showing off their wealth by supporting a young son-in-law studying Torah. They're adopting more Western trends. They are, there's this, you know, more secularization among the wealthy elite, even if it's not secularization, but it's at least, at least they're less uh, um, inclined to support a son-in-law who wants to study Torah, and therefore they're not going to marry off their daughters to that. So they're interested in young men who who had a university education or, or European mannerisms, and European mannerisms didn't look so kindly upon 12 and 13-year-olds getting married, and especially not uh, against being supported to study Torah afterwards. So the drop in the market value of yeshiva students leads directly to the sharp rise in the age of marriage until it reaches um, the marriage of the rest of Jewish society, what it had always been, either late teens, early 20s, and then even later. Um, so the Chavetz Chaim points this out. He says that the rich, and uh, they, they used to be respectful to rabbis, and they desired that their, that their daughters marry rabbis, and to support them for a number of years at their table, and to cover their expenses until they complete their Torah studies. However, they have ceased to do so. Um, that's 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 what the Chavetz Chaim writes, and uh, that's why the Chavetz Chaim and others, Dalter Slabatker, Bitzikachan Inspector, Bistral Salanter, and others went on to invent a new thing called the Kailal. The Kailal system is invented at the end of the 1800s to provide a financial basis for promising young Torah scholars, which is a substitute for rich fathers-in-law because they are no longer supported. And thus, while we don't have explicit evidence. Uh, for the rise of early marriage, we have a plausible explanation for its both appearance and the circumstances for its disappearance. Um, at the end of the 19th century, um, where there was this rise in the age of marriage, even among the elite of society who had previously gotten married quite young. There's obviously lot, lots more to cover in marriage trends in Jewish history, but we'll settle for this right now. Remember to fill out that survey at the Shidduch Institute, and this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites. 
at Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.